You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. It's good to see you guys this morning. This will be Luke 9, 37 through 50 is what we'll be studying before we head there. I want to open us in prayer. So if you bow your heads with me, that'd be great. Father, we come before you this morning with your word open, and I pray, God, that you would still our hearts and that you would focus our minds, and that as we open your word this morning, that you would help us to receive your correction. Lord God, help us to trust in you. Help Help our hearts to grow in, in greater depths of faith in you. Help us, help us to be cross-centered people who are looking to Jesus to be our everything. Help us to grow in true biblical understanding of who you are and what you want for our lives. Help us, Lord God, to put our, our self, uh, self-seeking and self-glorifying attitudes to the side. Help us to be focused on you. Help us to come to you in humility. Help us to be teachable. Help us to be in a position of needing and wanting your help. Help us to come to you true humility, which really does murder the pride that's deep inside of us. Lord God, help us to truly hear your correction of our lives. Help us to be in a a place where we are willing to receive your correction and your discipline. Help us to be wise in the midst of hearing what you would say to us. Help us to resist the urge to blame shift or to deflect your correction that you give to us. Help us, Lord God, to see your correction as, as the gracious and the merciful extension of your loving kindness to us today. So Lord, help us. Lord, your word says that that your word is like a double-edged sword which cuts deeply and leaves us naked and exposed. So Lord, I pray that you would lay bare the deep places of our hearts, the roots of idolatry and the roots of sin which have at times produced fruit in our lives. Lord, I pray that you would identify those things and that you would cut those things out. And as painful as that would be, Lord God, I pray that you would heal those roots and heal that fruit and cause things to be growing in our life that is Christ-like and godly. So Lord, I pray for those things this morning. I pray that for us. And I thank you. In Jesus' name, everybody said? Amen. Amen. So when was the last time that, that you made a mistake? When was the last time you made a mistake? When was the last time that that you wished that you could just find some big, gigantic mistake eraser? Kind of like the one that is pictured on the screen in front of you. And if you look closely at that mistake eraser, you'll notice that the word mistake is spelled wrong. When was the last time you made a mistake and wished that you could just have a great, big, cosmic, gigantic eraser to erase those mistakes from your life. Erase those things from your life completely. And most of us would say that we make mistakes often, but but what I want us to do this morning is to, to hone in finally 
on this topic. In fact, I want us to be more specific than just this broad term of mistakes. It's easy for us as humans to deflect and to have a false humility when it comes to the word of God and to say, well, I make mistakes. And then to kind of move past that and never receive the correction that the Lord wants to bring into our lives. And you think about this. If your car is low on oil, you do something specific. You correct that problem by putting oil in the motor, not transmission fluid, correct? You don't just blow by it and say, well, my car has some problems. You try to fix the specific things that are wrong. And that's what we're going to see in this text today. So that's why I ask us to kind of buckle our seatbelts a little bit and to kind of hold on for the ride, so to speak, as we talk about mistakes. I want us to be focused. So ask yourself some of these questions. When was the last time that that I made the mistake of mistrusting God. When was that last time that I made that mistake? When was the last time that I made the mistake of keeping, not keeping my focus on the cross of Christ? When was the last time that happened for me? When was the last time that maybe I made the mistake of <clears throat> seeking attention for me or self-glory? When was the last time that that happened? When was the last time maybe that that I made the mistake of fighting the wrong enemy? When did that happen? When was the last time that happened for me? Those are some of the questions I want you guys to wrestle with as we look at this text. And in all honesty, most of us have probably struggled with all of these problems very recently, if not as recently as this morning, as recently as yesterday, or as recently as this last week. For me, when I'm scared of the outcome of a certain situation... When I'm scared of the outcome of a certain situation that God is clearly asking me to do. When he's asking me to do something specific and I'm afraid of what the outcome of that might be like. If the outcome possibly means rejection or loss of relationship or friendship. It's in those moments where I struggle to trust God the most. Oftentimes I can become very passive and ignore things in those moments. And I can tend to kind of run from doing what God has asked me to do. And what's happening is I am struggling to trust God in those moments. I don't know what this looks like for you. Sometimes sometimes I also make the mistake of not being cross-centered. In other words, not being focused on Jesus himself and what he wants for my life in, in a way that I am processing my life's events through the lens and the picture of the cross of Christ. That I'm processing it through different um, sets of criteria, maybe. And sometimes the only reason I, I fail to process what's happening in my life through the lens of the cross of Christ is because I simply do not understand what is happening. I simply do not understand. And when I do not understand what is happening then I fail to look at the cross and bring the meaning and understanding for why or what this means through the cross. Sometimes I make the mistake of making a certain situation all about poor, pitiful me, right? Or all about grandiose uh, me, uh, savior to the rescue me. It's all about me. I have a tendency to do that as well in, in those situations. Sometimes 
Sometimes I make the mistake of fighting the wrong enemy, right? Sometimes I have to make the mistake of fighting the wrong enemy, especially like when my wife or my children or close friends come to me to give me correction. Because in that moment, what I often do at times, especially in my mind initially, is to push back and say, well, what about you? What's, what, what about you? Like, you got issues. This deflection and um, trying to get the attention off of me. And then I make them out to be the enemy instead. And when was the last time that someone corrected you? I want you to think about that. When was the last time someone corrected you? When you were corrected, what did you notice that came welling up from deep inside of you? Did you find it hard to trust in those moments? Was it difficult to see the reason for the experience? Or did you feel like, how dare they confront me? Did you struggle with wanting to lash back at the person who was correcting you? We all have the tendency to do this. We all have the tendency to do this when someone corrects us. We don't see correction as an opportunity to trust God. We don't see correction as an opportunity to become more cross-centered. We don't see correction as an opportunity to grow in pride-killing humility. We don't oftentimes see correction as an opportunity to fight against the real enemy. This is the reason why we need to hear this text in Luke chapter 9 today. We need to hear this text because the text we're about to study is focused entirely on Jesus' correction of his disciples' mistakes. And what we learn from this text is that Jesus corrects our mistakes. And in fact, Philip Ryken says this in his commentary on this text. He says, Luke 9 presents a series of four mistakes that Christians make. Four mistakes. List them out. Number one, not trusting God. Number two, taking our eyes off the cross. Number three, seeking glory for ourselves. And number four, fighting the wrong enemy. Let me show you what I mean. Let me show you what Riken means. Look at verse 37 with me of chapter 9. Luke says, On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him, so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him. And will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. Now think about this with me for a minute as we study this text. The disciples have just witnessed Jesus' very miraculous and powerful things, right? As they've been following Jesus, they have experienced and witnessed him doing miraculous and powerful things. And on top of that, Jesus has given his disciples the authority or the right and the power to do the same things that he does, for the purpose of furthering the gospel of the kingdom of God. And in verses 28 through 36, as we studied last week, we saw the transfiguration of Christ, right? The transfiguration of Christ, where we learned that Jesus is bigger than anything. 
Even though we learn those things and we see those things in Scripture, we oftentimes stand on this side of those events, looking at the disciples who were on that side of these events. They were actually there physically in the person they were there. And, and sometimes we look at them and we, we have a tendency to think of them as being a little bit superhuman, right? Like maybe it was easier for them as they experienced these things in the flesh. And maybe somehow it's harder for us to receive these things from scripture because we are removed from what was happening then. We, we are not there physically. And so when we see these things in the text, it's hard for us to grapple with them. It's, it's hard for us to connect with them. And we oftentimes wind up making really big excuses for our sin. Like, well, well, I'm just a sinner. I just make mistakes. And if I could have just been one of the disciples who was right there with Jesus. But the reality is that the disciples were just as human as you and I. We were no, no different. Made some of the same mistakes. And Luke tells us in this text that the, the very next day, catch that. I mean, think about this for a minute. The very next day after the transfiguration, it's the very next day. It's not, it's, not, it's not three weeks later. It's the very next day when the disciples come down from the side of the mountain. After seeing this beautiful thing, after experiencing in the flesh this beautiful thing happen with Jesus where he is radiantly transfigured in front of them. Heaven meets earth. The kingdom of heaven meets earth in a powerful and visible way. What Jesus has been preaching to his disciples has come true. They've experienced the power of God in a phenomenal way. The very next day, they come down from the mountain. This man brings his demon-possessed son to Jesus and asks him to heal the boy because his disciples are unable to do anything to help. It's the very next day. It's right after this amazing experience with Jesus. Yet the disciples are unable to do anything. How often, how often do we experience the power of Christ on one day only to forget the power of Christ the very next day? How often do we trust God for big things one day, only to mistrust him the very next day? How often do we ask Jesus to help us overcome something only to run the very next day? To run oftentimes right back to the thing that has been killing us. And Jesus' response in these moments and in this text is to correct our mistake of mistrusting him. Mistake number one is just that. It's mistrusting. Trusting God. And here's the deal. If you see that you are mistrusting God, there's a root to that fruit. The fruit you see always has a root. And the problem for us in the church and just as humans is that we like to attack the fruit because we can see it. It's tangible. It's easy. Let me go after that with a chopping knife or an axe and get rid of that. So for a lot of us, let me boil this out a different way. If we struggle with... Uh, um, when we struggle with pornography, we have, an, we have a temptation to just attack our computer or attack our phone or whatever it might be or attack the magazine racks. But the reality is there's a root to that fruit in your life. And what Jesus wants to do is get at the root so that your fruit can become healthier. 
And as we look at this, this is exactly what Jesus is doing because the root of mistrusting God is a lack of faith. The root of mistrusting God is a lack of faith. Listen, if mistake number one is mistrusting God because of our lack of faith, then what Jesus actually wants to correct in this text is not our mistrust of God, but more so our lack of faith. Now you think of the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews informs us that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. These are two very interesting words and very important. Why? Why is that so important to what we're studying? Because if Jesus is the author, it means he writes it and creates it, creates our faith. It means the faith that you have is not just something that is mustered up from deep within you. It's actually something that's given to you. It's a gift from God. He's given it to you. He's created it. He's written the book on it. And not only is he the author, but he's the perfecter. And if you're struggling in trusting God and, and you're lacking in faith, there is no amount, no amount whatsoever of you mustering up your faith that will help you trust him more. Only Jesus will perfect your faith. He's the perfecter. He's the one that makes it perfect. And so as you look to Jesus, he continues to write the story of faith in your life. Man, what is it for you? What situation are you facing right now that requires a superhuman or, or supernatural exhibition of trust in God through faith? What is it for you? What is it for you? Is it, is it a friend or a relative that is running from Jesus? Or is it sin that needs to be addressed in your heart? Is it a major life-changing decision? And whatever the situation is, we can be certain of this, that Jesus wants to use that experience in your life. He wants to use these experiences in our lives to grow the depths of faith in our hearts. He wants to continue writing the story and he wants to continue perfecting your faith. And so the idea is this, man, if Jesus is the author and the perfecter of your faith and if what we struggle in is trusting God during tough, difficult, and even good seasons and, and, if, and if he's the one who writes it and continues to create it and make it better, then you and I would do well to look to Jesus to help us in our lack of faith. We can be sure that Jesus is using these seasons in our lives to correct our lack of faith. Wants to grow, wants to grow like a gardener, wants to grow our levels of faith in him. Wants to grow those levels of faith so that the fruit in our lives would be people who stand firm and bold in the face of many things that the world throws at us. So that it's obvious to everyone around us. Is it obvious in your life that you are trusting in God for everything? <clears throat> and just like the father in this text, we should think about the contrast between the father who brings his demon-possessed son to Jesus and the disciples who have just experienced some powerful things only to turn, tail, and run the next day. We should think about the, the contrast in this story. And the faith that this man exhibited in a, another text is a man 
who comes to Jesus, same story, different gospel, I believe it's the gospel of Mark, parallel, synonymous text means same story. I believe the way that, that this man comes to Jesus is saying something along these lines. Help me believe. Help my unbelief. I believe. Help me to believe. I believe. Help my unbelief. There's so many ways that you could probably shake out the nuances of it, but the idea is, Jesus, I'm coming to you. I've got a little bit of faith. I've got just a little bit. Can you help me to continue to have more faith? Basically, this, this father, when he brings this son, is saying, I've only got a little bit. Can you give me some more? And what happens is in, in verse 43 of what we're studying, everyone in the text is astonished at the majesty of God. I mean, listen, don't miss this. Jesus correcting your mistakes is not about you. Jesus correcting your mistakes has nothing to do with you. It's about him. It's about Jesus. Jesus corrects our mistrust in him by addressing our lack of faith. When Jesus does that, and when we exhibit great trust in God because of the work that Jesus is doing, the text tells us that many people were astonished, not at the majesty of the man in the text, but at the majesty of Jesus himself. So the, the fundamental problem with us as humans is that we want to have ourselves and other humans be the center of the universe. And therein is the problem because Jesus was meant to be the center of the universe. So the work that Jesus does when he corrects us is, is, is in reality to correct our focus. And that's the problem for a lot of us. That our focus is off. <clears throat> Look at verses 43 through 45 with me. Luke says, But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. Hey, underline that for a minute. Just underline it, circle it. Do all those crazy things you do to it. Let these words sink into your ears. If anybody thought that Jesus wasn't a hard preacher when he says things, well, they didn't read the Bible. Just, they just missed so much of what. Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. And I love, I love how verse 43 says that everyone is just standing around marveling at everything Jesus is doing. Isn't it funny how we, we often do the same thing? We often like stand around marveling with these funny looks on our faces about the things that Jesus is doing. But most oftentimes we are completely dumbfounded at what God just did. And then what happens is into those moments, into those moments where you and I say, holy crap, Jesus just did this. Into those moments, Jesus wants to speak. Jesus actually does speak into those moments. And he speaks clearly. Now, don't hear me wrong because what oftentimes happens is that as Jesus is speaking, we oftentimes don't hear what he's saying. It's like Jesus is saying this. He's like, hey guys, hey guys, while you're all just standing around with these funny looks on your face because you're a little bit perplexed about what just took place and 
what just happened and you're all totally amazed about what I'm doing as I walk in on the scene. Honestly, you guys could have done that too. While you're just standing there, I want you to listen to what I have to say. Let these words sink into your ears. And we would all do well. We would all do well to let Christ's words sink into our ears. But here's the problem. The problem is this. The problem is that we often brush off the words. We brush them off. We, we're too busy. We're in too much of a hurry. We got too many things going on. We brush Jesus aside. We brush his words aside. They don't make sense. And so we don't go to a friend and say, help me comprehend. Help me understand. This is too hard of a saying, so I'm not going to listen to it. I don't feel anything when I'm reading it, Jesus, so I don't want to hear what you have to say. I'm offended at what you just said to me, so I'm no longer going to listen. This is what we do. We brush off Jesus' words. And this is why Jesus says, let these words sink into your ears. Our first mistake. Our first mistake is not trusting in God, which shows us a lack of our faith. Our second mistake, our second mistake is not being cross-centered. And not being cross-centered, if that's the fruit, then the root of that is a lack of understanding. It's a lack of understanding. It reminds me of a text in, in one of the epistles, and I believe the author was the Apostle Paul, when he says this. He says, the gospel is the aroma of life and death. It is the aroma of death to those who are perishing, the aroma of life to those who are being saved. Ever have a conversation with someone about the gospel making change in their life and they look at you completely dumbfounded and awestruck and there's like a glaze over their eyes like they have no idea what you're saying? It's because they're lacking understanding. They are unable to be cross-focused because they lack understanding. Listen, when we fail to understand what Jesus is saying, when we fail to let Jesus' words sink into our ears, when we fail to listen to Jesus, it's because we've forgotten the cross. It's because we've forgotten the cross of Christ. In other words, when we make the mistake of not being cross-centered or not being cross-focused, it's inevitably and inevitable that we will misunderstand the words of Christ. And then what results is we become afraid of Christ. That we would never want to admit these things. Because our hearts are so deceptive. We're so blinded sometimes by these types of desires in our hearts. And these types of thoughts in our heads. That, that for us to even shine light on these things. Or for the Holy Spirit to illuminate these things in our hearts and our minds. Through the word of God this morning can make us really uncomfortable. And so we have a tendency to brush those things off. Luke points to this lack of understanding which results in fear. When he informs us in verse 45 that, that they were afraid to ask him about anything, it should teach us something about our lack of understanding, which causes us to live in uncross-centered ways. And, and it, should, it should teach us something about the, the way that we process life's events through uncross-centered ways. 
this other visible fruit in our lives that could help us to identify whether we actually make this mistake or not would be the presence of fear. Are you afraid of Jesus? Are you afraid of Jesus' work through the community of the church? Are you afraid of Jesus' words in the scriptures? That would be coming from a lack of understanding, which is resulting in an uncross-centered focus. Get this. The disciples were afraid of Jesus. They were afraid of Jesus. They were afraid to ask Jesus a question. How often are you afraid to go to your scriptures and open them to see what Jesus might say to you about a certain topic? Because the fear of what the truth might mean for you scares you. That's you and I being afraid to let these words sink into our ears. Do you struggle to understand the purpose of the hard things that have happened to you? Now, do you struggle to understand why God would love you? Do you struggle to understand how to relate to those who hate or persecute you or have caused you to suffer? Do you struggle with figuring out how to relate to them or how to love them? Do you struggle with being afraid to confess your misunderstanding to Jesus? Do you somehow think that you must be perfect to come into his presence? Do you struggle with asking Jesus to make things clear to you? Listen, when you direct your misunderstanding, catch this, like everybody open your eyes. When you direct your misunderstanding of any situation in life to the foot of the cross, I believe that what will happen is you'll begin to see the ultimate purpose of that thing happening in your life because the ultimate purpose of every experience, let me say it again so you don't miss it, the ultimate purpose of every experience is God the Father drawing sinners to the cross of Christ. It doesn't just happen one time. It's, It's to happen all the time. This is where we are to spend our time is in the shadow of the cross of Christ whereby we see the picture of a bloody and battered and beaten and murdered Savior who gave himself willingly to be the ransom for our lives. This is where we spend our time. Jesus corrects our mistake of not being cross-centered by addressing our inability to understand life through the lens of the cross. And if you don't understand why something's happening in your life, man, go back to the word and ask God to give you understanding through the lens of the cross. Somebody once said that the cross of Christ is the center apex of all history. There was a group of people that looked forward to the cross to be their salvation. And then there's people like us who look back at the cross to be our salvation in Christ. The mistake of not being cross-centered is not understanding life through the picture of the cross and the work of the cross. And that's not the only mistake. And there's this other mistake that Jesus corrects in the text as we make our way through it. This other mistake that Jesus wants to correct is the mistake of seeking self-glory because Jesus definitely wants to correct that mistake in our lives. Look at verses 46 through 48. An argument arose among them. I, I love this 
part, this is really interesting, right? Jesus is correcting mistakes all the way through this text. And he's like, hey, don't do that, do this instead. Don't do that, do this instead. And what happens in the midst of him correcting mistakes is they start arguing amongst themselves. Like, surefire way not to get your mistakes corrected some more. Let's start arguing. This is a good idea, right? Let's just start arguing and causing fights and picking fights with one another. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Yeah, this is a good idea too. Let's start figuring out who's going to be the most popular. That's a great idea. Jesus will definitely love us for having that kind of an argument, correct? And you look at this story, you look at the disciples, and you go, man, how stupid were they? How stupid were they? Like, how stupid are we? That's, that's really what Jesus is teaching us in this text. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Have you ever gotten in an argument with someone? Most of you, if not all of you, should at least raise your hand because all of us have picked a fight with somebody at some point in time or gotten into an argument with someone. Have you ever gotten in one of those arguments, though, where towards the end of the fight, you were trying to figure out what you were actually fighting about? And then maybe you begin to realize that, you know, the only reason I was actually fighting that fight was just to prove that I was right. I was only like fighting that fight because I wanted to win the fight because I like to win the fight or prove that I was right or at least be able to walk away patting myself on the back believing that I was right regardless of what they say or have one of those fights. And this is, this is kind of one of those moments in the text. These guys are fighting to see who could one-up the other more. And the problem with this is that in their arguing, what they're literally doing is trying to see who would be greater. They're basically saying, I'm going to be greater. And the other guy's like, no, I'm going to be greater. That's what's happening in this. No, I'm right. No, I'm right. No, no, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. A friend of mine told me this story about a group of people that show up in heaven, at heaven's gate, right? They show up at heaven's gate and you got Baptists and you got Methodists and you got Lutherans and you got Pentecostals and then you got these guys that don't want to be a part of any denomination because they're more right than everybody else. And they're all like, hey, can we get into heaven? And St. Peter's like, you know what? Um, let me go talk to Jesus. I'll be right back. St. Peter goes and talks to Jesus and then he comes back and he goes, well, uh, Jesus says that uh, even though you all thought you were right, you were all wrong and since he's right all the time, I guess you can come in. We have a tendency to try to one-up everyone around us because we think we're right. The mistake that Jesus is correcting in this portion of the text, and he's trying to correct in us, is seeking self-glory. But self-glory as a fruit is attached to a... There's two of you that got it this morning. Thank you, Jesus. I prayed that only one of you would get it. And so since two of you have gotten it, that's awesome. Seeking self-glory is a fruit that is attached to the root of lack of a lack of humility. Lack of humility is the issue when you see someone who is seeking self-glory. This is why Jesus, who knew the reasoning of their hearts, as the text says, used a child as a physical object lesson to teach them that humility was what they were lacking. The reality is that Jesus is saying, I want you to be like this child, teachable teachable like this child. So Jesus corrects the disciples' mistake 
of seeking self-glory by pointing to the root issue, which is a lack of humility, right? But then he also shows them visibly, uses the child as an object lesson. He shows them visibly what it looks like to pursue humility that results in self-defamation instead of self-glorification. To receive Christ is to have the heart of a humiliative and teachable child. And to receive Christ in the humiliative and teachable nature of a child is to receive or accept the Father who sent Jesus to us. In reality, what Jesus is doing here is he's, he's showing us, he's, he's correcting the prideful nature within all of us that causes us to make the mistake of seeking self-glory. Self-glory is the fruit of the outcome of a lack of humility deep within our hearts. It is the enemy, enemy of pride. So if we recognize that our self-glorying attitudes and our self-glorying desires and our self-glorying habits, if we recognize those things, we can be certain that if we follow the bunny trails of those things that we recognize, if we follow those, we will, we will find a lack of humility that is rooted in pride. And pride is the enemy of humility. In reality, in reality, Pride is the enemy of Christ. It's the enemy of Christ. It's not only the enemy of Christ, but it's ultimately the enemy of the Father who sent Christ. This is why Proverbs 8.13 says that the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. To fear God is to hate that which is evil. It's not to love it and it's not to excuse it. It's not to say, well, I did that evil thing because I suck. That's an excuse. That's, that, that's not it. The fear of the Lord hates that which is evil. Followed by this in Proverbs 8. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. So God says I hate these things. So pride is the hateful enemy of our Father in heaven. Do you sometimes make the mistake? Listen. Do you sometimes make the mistake of dreaming about how you might get back at those people who've hurt you? Do you sometimes make the mistake of always talking about you and your great accomplishments? <clears throat> Do you make the mistake sometimes of, of glorying in self-pity? So it's the opposite of telling all these stories about how you have done all these great things. Now it's always telling stories about poor pitiful me. My life sucks. This happened bad. This was, I'm not, I'm not talking about coming to people and saying, man, my life is, uh, it's rough right now. Please pray for me. I'm just saying what dominates your speech, what dominates your thinking? Do you make the mistake of not taking interest in other people's interests? Do you make the mistake of making grandiose statements that make you look great at the expense of someone else? Do you make the mistake of explaining away and justifying your mistakes? These are just some of the ways. Just some of the ways that we often make the mistake of seeking self-glory in here. Jesus wants to correct this. And he corrects this in us simply by saying, become like this child. Become like this child so that I can correct the lack of humility inside of you. So that instead of seeking self-glorification, you will begin to seek my glory. 
which ultimately will bring glory to the Father who sent me. And here's the interesting thing. And sometimes when our mistakes get corrected, we begin to get kind of shifty, don't we? Kind of begin to move around the seat a little bit. We get uncomfortable, don't we? We don't like the attention of correction because it feels negative rather than positive, which is oftentimes what leads us to say things like, gosh, I just wish you were more encouraging. Why can't you just walk with me? What does that even mean anyways? Like somebody should stop and ask that question sometimes. When we say those things, what does it really, truly, biblically mean to encourage someone? What does it really, truly, biblically mean to actually walk with somebody? Seriously, because, because we allow our humanistic way of thinking, our self-preservation, our self-seeking hearts to interpret what, what we think means encouraging and walking with, and it's not even close to what Jesus did with his disciples, but we expect others to walk with us or encourage us in ways that are different or contrary to the way that Jesus did it, and then we want to call ourselves Christian by doing so. Come on. Like, pick up a Bible, right? But, but what about their mistakes? What, what, what about their mistakes? Is it, like, you're trying to correct? What about those guys? This is where we oftentimes head. We want to deflect the attention off of us to someone else. Watch this in the text. Look at verse 49. John answered. I mean, get this. They've been corrected three times already on numerous things, different things. Jesus is just like, bam, 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 one right after the other. He's not pulling back. He's not letting up. He's not going off for a beer to ignore it. He's not getting passive. In this conversation, he's like, listen, right? And what's their response? Listen to John. Listen to the beloved one. This is the disciple John. John answered, Master, Master, we saw someone casting demons out in your name. And we tried to stop him. Because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. You could say that in a positive. Someone who is for you is not someone who is against you. As I studied this, it completely baffled me. As I, as I looked at this text, what baffled me was the patience and the faithfulness Jesus to his disciples in the midst of their obvious mistake after mistake after mistake after mistake after mistake. I mean, Jesus has just spent some considerable time correcting his disciples' mistrust of God due to their lack of faith. He's corrected their mistake of not being cross-centered due to their lack of understanding. He's just corrected their mistake of seeking self-glory due to their lack of humility. And then right now, on the tail end of correcting that third mistake, he corrects them a fourth time. It's almost as if they had blinders on. It's almost as if they had earplugs in. It's almost as if their hearts were so hardened that Jesus had to continue correction after correction after correction after correction. Maybe they were just super uncomfortable. Maybe they were just super uncomfortable because their response to Jesus correcting their mistakes is to immediately begin pointing their finger at someone else. It's like, it's like yeah, yeah, Jesus, we hear you. Oh, yeah, 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 I, I hear you. I, I hear what you're saying, but, 
ah, no, we, we got a lot of work to do, like, in my heart. There's a lot of things going inside of me to me to work on. But what about him over there? Like, what about that guy? Because he's in a completely different club. And you should probably go talk to him. You should probably correct him over there, Jesus, because he's a wreck. He's a mess. Look at his heart. I mean, Jesus, he might go to hell. You should probably correct him and stop correcting me. Correct him, Jesus. Correct him. Correct him. That's what the disciples are doing. Jesus isn't buying it. He's not buying it. Instead of accepting the deflection of attention from his disciples, he instead corrects the fourth mistake, the mistake of fighting the wrong enemy. Finding the wrong enemy is rooted in a lack of wisdom. Listen, wisdom says, and Jesus ends this text this way, wisdom says that if someone is not against you, then he isn't your enemy, so don't make him out to be your enemy just because he isn't in your cool crowd. Don't make him out to be your enemy just because he doesn't like the same set of preferences on his remote control. Don't make himself out, don't make him out to be your enemy because he goes to a different church or drives a different car or believes in some of our secondary doctrines in a different way. Don't make someone out to be your enemy, especially to get the attention off of you. Jesus is correcting the mistake that we all make often. And this mistake that we make is, is to make mountains out of molehills and enemies out of brothers and sisters just to get the attention off of us, which really is unwise. Because wisdom, again, doesn't make enemies out of friends who are doing things differently than you would like them to. Instead, instead, wisdom seeks correction. Wisdom seeks correction because it is the extension of the love of God. Wisdom seeks correction because it is the extension of the love of God. And the wise child of God, the wise child of God seeks God's correction because the child of God loves to be captured by the love of God. Proverbs 10, 17 says, Whoever heeds instruction is on the path to life, but he who rejects reproof leads others astray. Ouch. If you guys don't know where that hits home in our current season of church, that's hard. That's hard to, to read that in Scripture. Like those are not words that we want to let sink into our ears. Whoever heeds instruction is on the path to life. But he who rejects reproof leads others astray. Proverbs 13, 1 says that a wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. You know what a scoffer is? A scoffer is one who makes fun of someone else. <laughs> Can you believe they act that way? Can you believe they actually take those words in the scriptures to be literal? That's a scoffer, someone who scoffs at the word of God. The child of God seeks the correction of Christ and resists making enemies out of brothers and sisters in Christ because the child of God has enough wisdom to understand who the real enemy is. 
I'm going to invite our music team to come back forward. The big idea of this text is that Jesus corrects our mistakes. Jesus corrects our mistakes, right? He corrects the mistake of mistrusting God due to a lack of faith. He corrects the mistake of not being cross-centered due to our lack of understanding. He corrects the mistake of seeking self-glory due to our lack of humility. And he corrects the mistake of fighting the wrong enemy due to our lack of wisdom. I love Jesus in this text because he doesn't get distracted. He doesn't shift his focus. He continues to correct his disciples. Isn't it great to see Jesus' loving faithfulness? We misinterpret God's loving faithfulness sometimes. And we think that Jesus is like some big cosmic dude in the sky who, who just lets us get away with whatever we want. That, that, that would be an evil God. That, that would be an evil, hateful God who would just sit there passively and just let us go, right? But God doesn't do that. And in this text, we see Jesus' loving faithfulness as he continues to correct imperfect people perfectly. Isn't it reassuring to see Jesus' commitment to us in that even when we attempt to blame shift or deflect his correction, he stays focused on correcting us. He stays focused on correcting our wandering hearts. Our hearts are prone to wander. Our hearts are prone to become to become self-focused. Our hearts are prone to become distracted. Our hearts are prone to trust in things other than Christ. Our hearts are prone to wander. Yet Christ stays focused on correcting our wandering hearts. Doesn't, doesn't, doesn't this just make you love Jesus even more? Doesn't, doesn't this well up within you some desire to actually go and say, hey, Jesus, is there anything you need to correct in me? Doesn't that cause you to say, man, Jesus, I want to sit in, in your presence and, and hear you correct me because the reality is that in the midst of all of this correction, the reality is we're walking with the one and only cosmic eraser. The reality is all of our mistakes have been erased. They're not really there. And what Jesus is doing when he corrects us is he's helping us to walk like him. The brother or the sister that refuses or rejects the correction of God made clear in the scriptures is not a brother or sister. It's clear. The brother or sister who seeks the correction of God through the scriptures, through the church, through other brothers and sisters, that is a brother or sister. Why? You know that because that's Jesus at work in someone. Because if Jesus is at work in someone, then that brother or sister will come and say, correct me, correct me. I believe, help my unbelief, correct me. Help me to trust in God more. Help me to put Christ first. Help me to apply the cross of Christ to every aspect. Help me. 
That's the words and the cry of a brother or sister who has been saved by Christ, who has applied that big eraser to his or her life. And, and, and then the cry for those who have not had that application yet is, come to Christ. Let these words sink into your ears. You will never receive correction that you will appreciate or desire if it's not Christ in you, bringing you and drawing you to that correction. It's really Christ asking you to live out the identity which has been given to you through Christ and his work at the cross as he corrects you. That's the reality. Isn't this kind of correction from Jesus comforting to some of you? Isn't it comforting to know that Jesus will not just save you, quote unquote, and then stick you in a box and let you go, but that in his loving faithfulness and kindness, he will continue to pursue you. And there's some of you that are sitting here, you've got some things going on in your heart and in your mind and the activity of your lives that you honestly need to repent of and be corrected in. My hope and my prayer is that from this message in this section of text, that from this point forward, you will begin to desire the correction of God through his word, through other brothers and sisters in Christ. My hope and my prayer is that you will desire that because that is the work of the Holy Spirit through the message of the gospel in someone's heart and life. It's not about perfection. It's about progress. And I would say it this way. It's not about working to become perfect. It's about willingly progressing. Jesus corrects our mistakes. And my question for us is this. Do we stand corrected today? There will be a few of us here near the front after I pray. We're willing to pray with you guys. The ministry of prayer is to serve you. It's It's a place where you can say, I think God said this to me through this message. It's a place for you to say, I think I need to confess some things and repent of some things. It's a place for you to say, I have some needs I need prayer for. That's why we offer prayer at the end of our gathering every time. And so I encourage you that as I close in prayer and as we continue in worship, that if you have a prayer need and if God has been speaking to you through this text, and I would encourage you to man, just come forward and receive that prayer. Bow your heads with me and let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this word today, Jesus. You've been so good to us. Thank you for correcting us through the power of your word being preached. Help us to trust you. Help us to place our eyes on the cross. Help us to put you first and glorify you. Help us to fight the right enemy. Help us to have humility. Help us to have understanding. Help us to glorify you. Help us to fight the right fight. Help us to fight right alongside of you. I pray for us, Lord, that you would do a deep, deep work through the power of your cross and the power of your word in our hearts through this text. And I just thank you. In Jesus' name, everybody said? Amen. Thanks for letting me preach, guys. I love you guys. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.